Warning. The following podcast may contain explicit language. It will certainly contain heterodoxy, political pandemonium, and graphic depictions of alcohol use. Listeners may rest assured that at the time of recording this episode, all participants had nowhere to drive. The Cocktail Party Congress encourages you to drink and think responsibly. In vino veritas. Liberty is too precious a thing to be buried in books, Miss Saunders. Men should hold it up in front of them every single day of their lives and say, I'm free to think and to speak. My ancestors couldn't. I can. And my children will. You know, I'm a voter. Aren't you supposed to lie to me and kiss my butt? Cocktail Party Congress, the only political discussion podcast to our knowledge with a three-drink minimum. I'm Dan Caves. And I'm JT Andrews. It's been a while, Mr. Caves. It really has. Uh, I can't even count how long it's been, but JT, what the hell have you been up to in the intervening however many weeks or months? Well, since you've been gone, I've I've been uh, doing a couple of podcasts where I did... uh, Ben and Zane uh, invited me onto their podcast, the Carton Cast, where we discussed, uh, well, they discussed animated media of any sort. And uh, we discussed one of my favorite movies, The Land Before Time. Ooh, yeah, that's really nice. And uh, yeah. And we did a couple of episodes of Empowered, where we talked about superpowers. We talked about, uh, what did we talk about? I think Rocket Fists was one of them. That, that was That was pretty fun. You, you got my vote for Rocket Fists. That's that's fantastic, JT. And I, I guess one way, another way to put this is um, the Cocktail Party Congress is part of the Fancy Bat Podcast Network, which is an, an independent network of just a mishmash of different shows of which the Carton Cast is sort of the founding flagship. Um, and Empowered is one where all the different shows kind of get together and collaborate on just fun arguments about superpowers. And yeah, they're quick little podcasts. I'm, yeah, they're really short. Go ahead and give both of those shows a listen. Empowered is very short and punchy, and uh, if you like extended discussions of cartoons of the past and how we react to them as adults, go definitely check out the Carton Cast. Actually, I've got an appearance coming up on that, too. I'm kind of a, a resident horror expert somehow. And so with Halloween on the way, I'm getting together with Ben and Zane to talk about uh, Beetlejuice, Ooh, the animated I mean, series Beetlejuice. I was going to say, the animated series, the it's good stuff. Yeah, yeah. But, oh, JT, that's fantastic. I actually listened to the Land Before Time episode uh, this past week, and you performed really well, and it was a really interesting conversation. My mic did not perform very well. In fact, I think it (laughs) – I was operating on, like – I'd gone without sleep for about 24 hours at that point. It was a really bad time (laughs) to record a podcast, but I did. Um, Hey, man, it happens. happens. Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. I'm just glad I didn't have work the next day. Yeah. And hey, f- you did it sober too. So. Yeah, very true. <laughs> it yeah. would have made me sleepy. Uh, and like flashbacks to the early days of this podcast where we had a similar situation of the, the wrong mic feeding into the wrong area. It's, That's it's all my good. Guess. It's, it sounded good. Yeah. I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> uh, uh, nostalgia. Uh, fix it in post. That's what we say here. Um, yeah, I've been doing the whole law school thing. Yeah. Oh my God. It's <laughs> how's it treating you? <laughs> it's treating me well. I'm fine. I, it, it's a ridiculous amount of work, but I feel like I'm finally doing the right thing with my time and that I'm really on the right path. There we so, go. That's all you can ask for. Yeah, we're a little over halfway done with the first semester, and boy, have I learned a lot. And also, have I learned that I've got so much else left to learn. And that's really just it. Like the weight of my ignorance is overwhelming. So if I start to get more like hedgy in my language and my arguments on the show, I, that's why is I like I'm. I, I, I won't hold it against you. 
yeah, like it can get annoying in some contexts, but I, I'm learning so much about how little I don't know, <laughs> so, or how little I do know at the very least. Um, sorry, that's actually a very good segue into the delicious drink that you've chosen for us there tonight, JT. I have because <laughs> it's it's doing its work. This episode's cocktail is the Negroni, and the Negroni. Oh yeah, is this is like my third glass of it. I, this is the third glass I've ever that's, had of, of a Negroni. I've never even had Campari before. Yeah. I was about to say, that's the rule, that you're on your third glass, but go on. <laughs> yeah. This is three-drink minimum. All right. Yeah. Uh, the Negroni, it's a really good co- cocktail. I've never had Campari before, and if you haven't, mm. try it. It's it's delicious, and this is a really good drink to, to introduce yourself to this stuff. Um. But what you're going to need is you're going to need a rocks glass. You're going to need some ice in it. And you're going to pour in equal portions. I would say one ounce of gin. You're going to need one ounce of Campari. And one ounce of sweet red vermouth. And then you're going to garnish that with a an orange peel. And that's it. Just a little stir and you're ready to drink. Yeah, it's a it's a deceptively bitter drink. Yeah, it it looks bright. <laughs> it, it it looks pink. Like it looks like it should be a lot more fruity than it is. And then you taste yeah. it, and you're like, "Wow, this is actually really bitter, bitter and herbal." That's the Campari talking. And you know what? I like it. I really like it because I like bitter things. But so do I. I mean, I drink yeah. my coffee black. Yeah. Right. Um. I've been putting cream in mine just to avoid dentist appointments because the sandblasting is annoying. <laughs> but uh, I, if if bitter isn't your thing, JT, we were discussing before the show that um, play around with the gin yes. that you're using uh, because there are, there's a wide variety of gins out there that could suit your needs. And um, I've got a London Dry. I'm using Beefeater in mine. Uh, but th- there are sweeter gins out there, like an old Tom gin. Old that might old Tom would go very well in this. Right now, I'm I'm drinking yeah, the yeah. Uh, Bombay Sapphire East, which has a little bit more like lemongrass flavor to it. Um, mm-hmm. A little bit on the sweeter side, and it, it works that works out a lot better. I made my first one with uh, a London Dry. I think it was also Bombay. Uh, yeah, and it wasn't quite as good as as the sweeter one is. Um, Damn. I'm going to have to invest in a sweeter gin because the Campari probably isn't going to drink itself. Uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it's good. It's, that's, like, that's I, a mixing one. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a mixer. That's not its own thing. I'm I'm not that Italian. It <laughs> <laughs> uh, is good. Well, uh, yeah, I'm enjoying it thoroughly, and thank you for choosing the, uh, the Negroni for this. Um, well, what are we going to talk about tonight, JT? Uh, it's um, been so long. I'm it's thinking... <laughs> The judiciary? Yeah, you think that's relevant to the times? Well, oh my God. yeah, it's re- relevant to the times, and I'm sure our listeners have already read it in the uh, the show's title. Yeah, that's how what is it? We're going to call it Ju- Judicial Jabronis Drinking Negronis. I love that title. Something idea. like that. It's like, there we go. It's like, no, we're going to go with that. I think you even said it in an earlier correspondence, and it's like that's the first time we had a title before we had a show. So it's like we're, yeah. going, we're running with it. Usually dude. we're we're <laughs> scrambling to come up with a title, and it's just like, uh Yeah, that's usually the last thing we think of, and it's usually like, JT, Help me out with this pun. Is this fun? <laughs> <laughs> he would pun would pick a pocket. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we're talking about. I mean, okay, let's let's just say that it's the broadest possible topic, the judiciary. I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we can. I think we're gonna focus on of, the the constitutional aspect of like the the Supreme Court in in, in name. I would say, um, yeah. Because as we all know, it's like I tried my best to keep my head in the sand during this whole ordeal, but we just had a recent nominee confirmed to the Supreme Court, one Brett Kavanaugh, and uh, whatever you think of the value of getting a chess move in at this point, it just wasn't a proud moment for our country 
either way, and it's just no. So I figure that, you know, yeah, this it's is, a good topic for a conversation. It's, and, it's a good time. Know. It's a pertinent time. We're just adding to our uh, our show's zeitgeist, I suppose. Yeah. And also our habit of being just slightly late to the conversation. Oh, of course. Of just, just slightly. But, you know, yeah, ever so slightly. But that's why we try not to talk too—we too, too, don't focus too much on the current events aspect. We're talking slightly bigger picture stuff so we can, we can at least stay a little relevant. So, Yeah, Supreme Court. Dan, do you have any, yeah. like, favorite Supreme Court cases— um. Oh shit! Just, <laughs> just off the top of your head. <laughs> okay, so it, it, and it's partly the fault of my civil procedure experience and my my civil procedure professor. I've got two cases in mind that were just decisive in how civil law is practiced at the federal level. First, we have Bell Atlantic v. Twombly. Which, oh God, uh, where's my brief on this one? Um, it was during the 2000s, and it came up... Uh, it was... Uh, don't even quote me on that. But it was, a ca- it was an antitrust case where the Supreme Court eventually decided that the way that pleadings should work in cases should be more strictly interpreted and... So when you're bringing a case in federal court, you have to bring a complaint, and that complaint originally used to just have to consist of short, plain statements asserting a claim for which relief can be granted. So essentially, it's something that you can sue for. And it used to be very liberally construed because you could get a case into the discovery process and sort out the facts, but you could you could plead a sufficient case that was that could be kind of vague it could it didn't need to be necessarily one way or the other um you just had to essentially let the other person know it was called notice pleading they had to be on the other party had to be on notice uh for for what they were being sued about and so bell atlantic v twombly was an antitrust case where the complaint basically went about saying they conspired, you know, Bell Atlantic Corporation and these telecommunication companies, they conspired to, you know, perform antitrust situations and whatnot and so forth. And the Supreme Court took that opportunity to strike down that interpretation of civil procedure and um, really tighten up what it takes to get through the initial process. And then there was another case where it was called Ashcroft v. Iqbal, which um, built off of that Supreme Court case and made it so that judges could just strike any conclusion of law in a complaint, which was really like, if you say in your language that the defendants conspired to do this or that, or that they negligently did this or that, a judge could just knock that out of the complaint and then use their experience and common sense to judge whether there was a plausible um, explanation for whether you have a claim for relief or not. And so now you need a lot more going in to bringing a lawsuit in federal court. So those two cases together are called Twickball, so Twombly and Iqbal, <laughs> and it, it's just like... That's been the dominating two cases of the last six weeks of my life. <laughs> it's like, there you so go. yeah, that that's like that is the the half drunk version of <laughs> uh, of what I've learned so far. It's like Bell Atlantic v Twombly made it so that if there was any plausible, also legal alternative explanation for the facts that you were alleging in your complaint the court could just say you don't have a case and throw it out <laughs> in the you know if, if if the other party decided to to move to dismiss it on the grounds that you don't have a case and then Ashpo- Ashcroft v. Iqbal which arose out of the war on terror we haven't 
really touched on that too much, but <laughs> that, that that was a um, a very political decision, and that tightened it even further to say that a, a judge can just knock out language that is too conclusory and judge whatever was left. So there you go. If you're ever planning to bring a case in federal court, be prepared to do a lot of legwork going in. Yeah. <laughs> And in that rambling response, JT, do you have any favorite <laughs> Supreme um, Court cases? I I always I'm always a sucker for the feel good stories. I'm I'm a sucker for when are there any? <laughs> um, yeah, actually, one of my favorites was okay. uh, Tinker v. Des Moines. Uh, All right, this had to do with a case yeah, during yeah. the the Vietnam War, and there was a a high school student who. Uh, very politically active, even though couldn't vote yet, but very politically active and very politically interested and was very much against the, the war in Vietnam. And so in as a protest, wore a black armband to school to demonstrate uh, just the anti-war sentiment. And what happened was his uh, school board expelled him like for refusing to take the the armband off and this case uh made its way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court pretty much said that a school district cannot infringe upon the free speech rights of any of its students in you know in a public school unless they have a valid constitutional reason in which case they the school board did not in in Des Moines Iowa uh so yeah, that w- that's one of my feel the feel good Supreme Court cases where you actually had the Constitution upheld, uh, you know, <laughs> undeniably upheld. Uh, a st- you know, just because the person couldn't vote doesn't mean that they are not you know citizens or entitled by constitutional law to that right of free speech. And I think it's it's a very important case, especially for all you high school and college students that happen to listen to us if there are any <laughs> mm. yeah that's a pretty good yeah that's a pretty yeah, good that's one i completely my, forgot about tinker v des moines yeah, that's one of my I, favorites n- next semester we're probably going to get into that because constitutional law is what what we get to do next semester mm. so um i had forgotten about it i'm in such a fog of like how the supreme court interprets its own rules of civil procedure it's just like <laughs> Twickball. Twickball. <laughs> There's a term of art that fellow lawyers will <laughs> A, recognize, and B, like, judge me for getting wrong because I'm still just a student. <laughs> this is good. It's a learning process. It is. I, I know nothing, and I love it. <laughs> uh, good stuff. So anyway, the judiciary, the Supreme Court, the Supreme, <laughs> the Supreme Court who is responsible for the interpretation of the supreme law of the land, i.e. the uh, the Constitution of the United States of America. Um, article 3, that's the constitutional uh, article that that comes from. I don't know if we want to, yeah. if you have any uh, commentary on that. Article 3, uh, it, it's one of those, I would say, specifically vague articles. Um <laughs> It lays out what, like, what the uh, the Supreme Court is, what it's supposed to do, but they didn't really include a whole lot of the specifics. Like, there were some specifics, but um, for the most part, it it, it sort of took a hands off uh, a hands off attitude towards this uh, Supreme Court. But um, in fact, what we now know is the Supreme Court's job. That is to say, judicial review. That wasn't decided until much later with Marbury v. Madison. Uh, it at, had to give itself yeah, that power. It, it did have to give itself <laughs> that power. And the idea was that um, behind that case was that the legislative and the executive branches felt that they were best able to determine the constitutionality of a law that went into effect. So the Supreme Court would not need to interpret it. Um, but they found out. Otherwise, and the Supreme Court pretty much gave themselves the power to review laws and determine their constitutionality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's so that's been a sticking point over the years of political debate that I've witnessed and taken part in that 
specifically vague is the perfect way to put it, JT. Yeah. And like uh, another way to put it is it's a deceptively powerful branch of government. It doesn't look like much on paper, but without that power of judicial review, it really wouldn't be anything. But right. what else is it really there to do? It, it would, but to, Otherwise, it would just be like uh, the end of the line for any sort of um, just legal case in terms of appeals. They would just have the final say, but they wouldn't have the power to... Yeah, it's the court of last resort. Yeah, they, yeah. they would be that that final court and they would de- yeah. and and of course they it lays out some of the things that they do have the jurisdiction over such as uh when states are fighting with other states they get to determine that mm. constitutionality and they get to determine yeah. uh, those cases or whatever yeah. the this the united states itself is part of the uh, uh part of the party one of the parties involved or when there's mm-hmm. like a foreign government and one of our citizens involved they they have jurisdiction by the Constitution over that, but it wasn't until yeah. Marbury v. Madison that judicial review gave them the power to uh, to look at laws that were passed. Yeah, another one of the uh, jurisdictions that the Supreme Court has is between or for federal for for federal court generally, um, it's uh, called diversity uh, jurisdiction. It's uh, citizens of different states. Uh, and exceeding an amount, I think it's like seventy, seventy-five thousand dollars. Um, we haven't specifically covered jurisdiction yeah. yet, but I'm pretty sure that's it. But like, when different, so if a citizen of Iowa needed to sue a citizen of Wyoming, <laughs> it would be something that would fall under the juris. And uh, you know, when the amount in controversy reaches that that level, it's something that would be covered by a federal court and. And actually, that that's something that kind of comes up is that the Supreme Court is assumed to be the court of last resort for appeals from lower courts, but the Constitution itself only establishes the Supreme Court, and it gives Congress the power to establish all of the lower courts, like the circuit courts of appeals and the district courts and whatnot. Those are technically um, congressional constructs, but Article Three it, itself only only deals with the Supreme Court itself. And yeah, I just figured that was an interesting. Like it, it, the Supreme Court is both the the subject matter of Article 3 and is the only thing provided for under Article 3, but it isn't really anything. Yeah. Unless you it, go outside the bounds of Article 3. And, yeah. And whatnot. I mean, if you even if you look at just the makeup of the Supreme Court, how many justices are on it? There were originally what five or six. There's no set. There, yeah, there's, there's no set. There's number no set for number how many in Supreme this. Court justices. Um, but it, it's yeah. been changed yeah. throughout the years. I want to say it was originally five yeah. or six, yeah. and it it went up a bit. And it went down a bit um, throughout this country's history. It, it's increased and decreased, and now we have the Supreme Court, which we all know and love. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, so he, now, okay. <sighs> yeah, specifically in the Constitution, I think it's it's interesting to point out that this is where the uh the lifetime uh the lifetime membership of the Supreme Court oh, God. uh this is where that came from. Uh the idea was to sort of have this external uh, branch sort of away from the political sphere to to be objective and to actually they're better able to interpret the laws and the idea was to have sort of those I would say elite groups uh, populate the the uh, the Supreme Court. There is that, but if I could just take a stricter reading of where that comes from, it comes from the fact. <laughs> That it just doesn't specify a length of a length of office, and like the reasons for that, we can debate over. I I, I think that okay, so the motivation is definitely there for it being a um, what I like to call the the wall of separation between law and politics, and it, that's the central assumption without which our system I don't think would really work. Is the idea that the legal system operates outside of the political realm. But also just the practical um, 18th century assumption that if you're reaching the federal 
bench. You're probably at the pinnacle of a legal career. You're probably old, (laughs) and you're probably near the end of your life. (laughs) And so there wasn't much need... Possibly, it, 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 it's, it's like it's a very it's 18th like when, century assumption that like you're not going to stay that long on this court. <laughs> it's like winning the lottery when you're 95. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And honestly, I think that's something. If we ever got to the point of amending the Constitution again, we should reconsider whether the lifetime appointment. Because now you're getting people who are going to be appointed to serve on uh, federal courts generally, or this, oh, the Supreme Court specifically for you know decades and decades right. and decades and into their old age where maybe they aren't really, you know, there completely, but there's no reason to um, to impeach them. That, that, yeah. That's, that's something that we don't, yeah. That's something that doesn't really um, cross people's minds is that judges, Supreme Court or otherwise, they're impeachable. They are. You know, the, nobody nobody yeah. is immune from impeachment when they're, when they're yeah. in power. But also, nobody has tried since Thomas Jefferson. There. <laughs> yeah, like. I don't have the fact. Yeah, I, I don't have the facts in front of me. But he he felt that uh, one of the early Supreme Court justices was too political, and so he initiated, or at least he pushed for impeachment against one of them, and <laughs> it failed. And nobody has really tried since. <laughs> but yeah, it's been a, it's, it's been a while since we tried that. Um, yeah. That's not to say oh, that it, that it oh, wow. cannot happen because it it can happen. I mean, it's according to the rules, it's it's allowed to happen. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, what? Well, okay. So speaking of specifically vague, one of the most speci- one of my favorite parts of Article Three, and few people can say that they have a favorite part of Article Three of the Constitution, but one of mine is. Section three is the only piece of criminal, and I think this has come up in other episodes, the only piece of criminal law in the Constitution is treason. That's where we have our definition, our legal, yeah. our strict legal definition of treason. It's it's right there in Article three, um, which is yeah. which is odd. I, I was reading about this earlier, and, and it was based on one of the, I think, the Treason Act of 1351 or something like that over in England. This Mm. is where our our basis for what defines treason came from. And there were like five specific acts in there that constituted treason. But we only adopted, what, two of them, Um, where it's like levying war against, uh, against the United States or aiding the enemy for the most part. That, that, that's what constitutes treason in, in our constitution. But over in England, they had things like you cannot, uh, uh, you cannot wish death upon the king. You cannot, uh, there was a thing about fornicating within, uh, with royal blood because they were really worried that it was going to mess up the royal bloodline and call call into, you know, uh, call an heir's, uh, legitimacy into question so they, they they determined that to be an act of treason um but yeah right. we <laughs> <laughs> and there's something you didn't know before <laughs> yeah i did not know yeah. that honestly um now who now whose affirmative act would be treasonous would it be um the king siring bastards with a common woman or like the other way it would be the other way around so it's like um, okay you couldn't have a comic commoner uh uh coming in and making royal women pregnant that 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 was the idea back in the day um all right all right that's kinky i'm I'm glad (laughs) we've moved on from from those dark times but well, we don't have hereditary leadership, thankfully. I mean, technically, by, by the by, the letter of the have. law, we do not. <laughs> no, no, and we've dodged a few bullets here, there. Mm. I mean, I don't know if Jeb would have been a terribly good president, but we definitely didn't need another Bush. No, uh, it, <laughs> it, it's odd because I I find myself <laughs> I find myself liking George W. Bush more and more the further away he is from office like <laughs> i don't know what it is <laughs> yeah that's a feeling that a lot of people have yeah, yeah. Like, it, like, i'm i'm growing fonder of him now that the bush years are behind us um, yeah well there's a bigger political question behind being so subs- 
so specific about the definition of treason. And if if we're repeating ourselves from earlier episodes, please forgive us because it's been a while and we drink. Um, <laughs> and do we? <laughs> it's the question of treason is a favorite vague term that tyrants love to throw out against their enemies. And if you get someone reasonably pegged with the charge of treason, you can do pretty much whatever you want to them. It, 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 it was sort of the the pre-20th century version of the word terrorist is you can do whatever you want to a traitor. And so put it right in the bylaws, precisely what that means. Give it a very strict definition because let's just let's just say that for all of the like uses of the word treason that we hear in our political discourse over the years to actually be charged let alone convicted of treason these days it takes a lot um shall consist only in levying war against the united states or in in the kind of vague language of adhering to their enemies giving them aid and comfort you can only be convicted of treason on the testimony of two witnesses to the very to the very same overt act or by the accused's confession in open court so to, to yep. even be convicted of treason like the bar is set so high that they said yeah it's a big deal like it's a yeah. very big deal to be it, accused it should of be treason a big deal. yeah it should be yeah. and i'm glad that uh, the Constitution yeah. lays it out specifically, like how, like you need these, you have to meet these wickets in order to charge somebody with treason. <laughs> in law school, we call them elements, but I love the word wickets. <laughs> I'm going to start using that in class. There you go. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that, that 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 that's essentially it. Um, let's see what else. Uh, uh, hmm. That's one of the few places in the Constitution where we're happy that the, uh, or at least that we have solid evidence that they thought ahead to be specific on things. They did because for because for instance, in at the end of Section Two, Article Three, Section Two, trial of all crimes except in the case of impeachment shall be by jury. Crimes, just crimes, yeah, just crimes. We're not. Not talking in the in the civil in the actual const yeah in the actual constitution it's just crimes for which jury trial was guaranteed so that had to come up in an amendment <laughs> <laughs> that's what I like about our the constitution it's like hey if we mess something up we're still learning so we'll, we'll just amend it and move on with our lives yeah and something I've been thinking about a lot in the last few months is. Um, you got the Federalist Papers, which was the main set of arguments for the Constitution as we have it. But then don't discount the Anti-Federalist Papers, which I guess they technically lost, but also they're the reason that we have the Bill of Rights. And so the Seventh Amendment, where trial by jury was was preser preserved for suits at common law, which I'm not— sure if I'm prepared to go into the details of that bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that, that's some civil procedure that I am not yet fully internalized, but um, that took an amendment to, to to preserve the trial by jury for for civil matters in certain contexts. The short version is if it, if you were allowed a jury trial for it, before 1791, you're allowed a jury trial for it now, for like a lawsuit, whatnot. And if it was just a bench trial before 1791, that's all you're allowed to have, a bench trial. <laughs> Judge gets to hear that. There you no go. jury. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. If you're suing for damages, generally, you can get a jury trial. If you're like trying to get the court to do something, different story. <laughs> but. Oh, hey, yeah. So we have this co-equal branch of government of learned lawyers at the top of their professions who are expected to hear cases as objectively as possible. So when they're held and 
Well, okay, when they are appointed by a political process, how do you ensure that? Like, that's really the topic of discussion, yeah. you know, like thir- 30 minutes into this podcast. I'm not even— We're, we're finally getting into the— into, yeah. into the meat like, of the on. argument. I'm not sure that yeah. you can because every single person has some sort of bias, like political or otherwise. And um, I think that we need to move towards a system that acknowledges that the Supreme Court justices are human beings— that they're all mm-hmm. going to be flawed. And um, that's why I don't agree with the uh, the lifetime appointment of these. Now, you could do things like a, a 20, you could make it for 20 years um, and stagger it so that every, you know, I feel like you'd, you'd almost make it so every couple of years you'd get a new one going in there ap- after a very long <laughs> sequence. Um, I crunched the numbers once, and I came to about 18-year appointments for federal judges generally. There you go. Like, you're at a certain level for 18 years. Because, like, the average of um, how long anyone has ever served on the Supreme Court, um, like, I did it all, I did the math once, and 18 years. That's about it. So, and, 18 you know, years. Yeah, yeah. I could get behind Like, that. if I— like constitutional dictator Dan for the day, <laughs> like that's that's one of the things I write in. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. Yeah, that's a future show. What what would you do if you uh, you were made like Cincinnatus for a day? It'd <laughs> <laughs> be great. Well, yeah, I think uh, we should consider yeah, we should consider term limits on the Supreme Court just as much as we would consider term limits on. Uh, anybody in Congress or the, the Senate. Uh, I think these that term limits would ensure um, that if somebody is contributing, I would say, more of a political angle to their interpretation of the Constitution, uh, we're able to get rid of them after so long. Like they're not going to they're not going to be, you know, Strom Thurmond and stay there forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but on the other hand, like Strom Thurmond was able to continue to win elections. Like that's the thing, and and that and, and that gets into the second side of that is okay. So the Constitution of like the executive branch appoints and the legislative branch consents to the appointment of federal judges, but the states pretty clearly saw a problem with that, and some a good number of the states. I don't have the numbers in front of me. They have elected judges, and that gives the people at least some input in there. But is that – would you I, – I don't know if you have any thoughts on whether election of judges or appointment of judges by executives is a better system because I can think of pros and cons for each of those, I, and it, it's, it, it's a no-win scenario. Well, I think it's important <laughs> to have a division between the two. I think that Mm -hmm. uh, you do need, at the higher end, I would say, some sort of, um, I would say the appointment process is correct for that level, if it Mm -hmm. were coupled with term limits. Now, at the lower level, uh, federal courts, so I would say that election of of judges is perfectly legitimate because the people do need a voice. So I think we have a, a... this the framework for a decent system here with the exception of there's no term limits on the supreme court and i think there should be term limits for every public office i would say elected Mm. public office or even in this case appointed especially when it's so you know just the amount of power that is in that in those chambers uh yeah yeah (laughs) you know they can determine laws for hundreds of years to come like they have Mm -hmm. it within their power to be that influential and how do we know that that moral zeitgeist is not going to change you know within the next hundred years yeah and that's something that once once something becomes precedent and once um stare decisis kicks in which is the the respect for past decisions of the court and their binding nature and whatnot. You're only ever going to overturn a piece of precedent if it 
is clearly wrong and 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 that's the thing if it's clearly wrong and it's not causing social harm then there isn't yet a reason to overturn it but if but if it's if a court decides if the supreme court decides at some point that a decision is clearly wrong and causing social harm that combination is what leads to the overturning of precedent and the ignoring of stare decisis besides like distinguishing your case from right. the precedent that exists but and so yeah that is a powerful force for blocking things in and there are good reasons for that and there are bad reasons for that <laughs> uh, like some of the good reasons that i can think of are that once you have once you think that you have objectively decided a matter of law you want it to apply to similar cases over time because the legal system should give a certain level of predictability over time. Like a similar cases should have similar outcomes. That's the whole idea. And as long as those cases are not being decided politically and being decided on the merits and on the evidence presented and on the arguments uh, presented by our adversarial system, then that is a system that works. But especially at the Supreme Court level, we now have this weird game that we play where the assumption is that they are going to be deciding cases objectively on their merits, and that's the thing that we are expected to say out loud, but we all also kind of know <laughs> that, or at least we all kind of hope, based on our particular biases, that the Supreme Court justices who were appointed by certain parties in the past will be advocates for their teams. Yeah. And on the one hand, like, yeah, like, we, the more that we treat the Supreme Court politically, the more that it's going to be political, but also just the nature of the, dis, uh, of, uh, of the appointment process plants that assumption right. in there and and it's like it's almost like we're finally figuring out that there was a kind of a bullshit assumption behind <laughs> behind the system and, and it oh, and it really only works when we give ourselves the okie doke that it's all going to kind of yeah. work the way it's supposed to work you're making the assumption that the people we are appointing are you know the supermen the superwomen that they can't mm -hmm. they they will look at the law and they will interpret it not with any sort of political bias, but rather objectively. And that's really not the case, considering that these justices are products of their own appointment process. They're the products yeah, of a political yeah. process. And they were, you know, we saw this with the uh, the most recent appointment of uh, Justice Kavanaugh and mm -hmm. uh, pretty much the consensus about of just about every American is that the decision was made before he even walked into the room of mm -hmm. how they were yeah. going to vote on it. And I think that was the that's the problem that we are facing, that we're not willing to uh, we're not willing to find people who really are objective, it's we have to pick our guy and we know we've got the votes, so let's get him through as fast as possible. And because he's going to be yeah, on true. our side yeah. and he's going to be on our side on that bench for the rest of his life. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's a political investment that is being, being made. And that, that's what it, the, uh, the appointment process has turned into. Which is unfortunate. It's a chess move. It but is. Like, it's, it, 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 yeah, it, it's it's like they can see that they can see a few moves ahead, and they think that this is the best possible move for them. And whatever it costs us at this point, even if you have to lose a pawn or two in the process, the chess move is worth it to them. And I guess like one of the one, I don't want to say one of the cliches, but one of the one of the shibboleths of the the current political era that we're in is the idea of an independent judiciary and that becomes less and less of a viable 
idea, the more that I guess I could put it on the legislature and the executive in trying to corrupt the judiciary. Because in theory and in practice, that should be the branch that is. So when we talk about that we have a system that is based on the rule of law, and that is what it comes down to, is that it isn't a, it's not supposed to be a political process that governs our lives. It is supposed to be, the political process is how we decide who gets to be put in this objective place of authority. And that authority is expected to be used in an objective manner and in a manner that is outside of the realm of the person's biases. And, you know, the rule of law means that we sort of give everything to the legal system and the legal system is supposed to filter a bit. That breaks down. That completely breaks down once you have the political system trying to, you know, put its assumptions into the judicial branch. And it's a sort of a chicken and the egg situation where you don't know whether the the Supreme Court has always been a political body or if it has become a hot potato thrown about between parties in the executive and legislative branches. Well, well, now that we're in sort of this age of reactionary (laughs) politics, I feel like it's Mm. going to be. This this is the ping pong table. It's the Supreme Court. It's just going to bounce back back and forth, forth, just like our our Congress and just like our Senate, just like the executive branch. It's just going to, one is going to be the reaction to the other. We saw Donald Trump was the reaction to the golf clicker. was a reaction to oh, Barack Obama. Uh, We're up to 19. Left. We're up to 19. Uh, and sorry. most of those are because of Ben Welliford <laughs> from the Carton cast. Up yours, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Great conversation, but God damn it. <laughs> yeah, it, it, we're just ping-ponging, and now they're bringing the ping-pong game out of the legislator, out of the legislative branch, out of the executive branch, and now we're putting it into the judicial branch. And it's just going to go back and forth until we wreck ourselves. Yeah. And and that's the, like, this is part of why this is such an aggravating process to watch happen is that one day, once I get through the schooling and I get my maester's chain and I pass the, hopefully <laughs> knock on wood, pass the bar and end up a lawyer, I shouldn't have to worry about the political biases of the judge who was appointed in the court to hear my case. That's not something that a lawyer should have to worry about. And the worst... Now, we're not there yet. I, oh, I just no. want to say that. I, 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 have a, I have a strong feeling that at the district court level, which is the trial court at the federal level, And at the Court of Appeals for the circuits, to a certain extent, uh, those are probably functioning on a certain level. And we see that in the news from time to time. Like when the president tries to pull one on on his policies, it's going to be a federal judge, a district court judge usually, who puts a stop to it in the interim. And I don't – first of all, I don't know who appoints those people or who appointed those people. And on the other hand, I kind of don't want to know. It's kind of more reassuring to know that somebody at the federal level was putting a stop to this. And I guess we can get into um, briefly, if you want, sure. the <laughs> the organs by which these lists of judges um, come about. Because you kind of have a duel of... Uh, organizations that are producing legal professionals uh, on the conservative end of things and at the more prolific and successful end of things. You have the Federalist Society. And before I came to law school, I had a hard time naming the liberal counterpart for that. It's the American Constitution Society. And the fact that you've probably never heard of it is a sign (laughs) of just how much (laughs) the, the, the Republican Party Federalist Society side of things is winning. But yeah. That's how like that's how Brett Kavanaugh came about. 
that's how a lot of our current president's federal judge uh, nominations came about is you get a big list from the Federalist Society and hopefully they're being produced on, you know, um, a, hopefully they're being, um, what's the word I'm looking for? These Negronis are so good. Hopefully they're qualified. <laughs> Hopefully they're qualified for what they're doing and and whatnot. And that they're on the list because they deserve to be there and not just because they are a a competent batter for their team. Yeah, I mean You know. It's all this is sort of like going back to lobbyists and whatnot. That like how ah, how right. the lobbying groups right now have such a huge pull. And what happens in Washington? Uh, they have a huge pull with the, you know, historically they've had a huge pull with the legislative branch, but now they have a huge pull with the executive branch. And it's starting to pull its way, like just starting to hop over the fence into the judiciary branch through this nomination process. So I say don't hate the players, hate the game. Do you, Dan, do you think mm-hmm. that our country needs a constitutional convention to resolve a lot of these issues, like as soon as possible. I, okay. I think so for sure. I think I had a moment of clarity about this a few episodes <laughs> ago, like where, where I outright called for an article, a full blown article that's five right. convention. And you know what? I am. That's my version of, you know how so many people voted for Trump. Take a drink. <sighs> They voted for him because they wanted to to blow the system apart. <laughs> That's my version of blowing the system apart is keep in mind what happened the last time we had something like the Article 5 convention. It was what brought us from the Articles of Confederation to the Constitution. <laughs> That's essentially what happened. Yeah. So like it would it would be invoking Article 5 would be a revolutionary act itself. <laughs> But I am convinced that like there are so many distortions in our system, and we can in future in future episodes we're going to get into more of them. But in the judicial branch, especially Article Three, I mean, there are so many things that need to be cleared up, like the the, the lifetime appointment of judges and um, even just the partisan nature of the process itself. I, I think that's something that needs to be on the table. <laughs> Same here. I, I really think that we need yeah. to change the the Constitution. Uh, to somehow keep this uh, these reactionary politics out of out of the question here, um, and because otherwise it's just going to be back and forth, back and forth, and back and forth. And in the meantime, the American people are going to suffer. I mean, it's it's not yeah. it's not the people yeah. in Congress, not the people in the White House, not the people on the Supreme Court. It's going to be the American people, just average Joe Schmo, that's going to have to pay for all of this. Yeah. Yeah, it's ridiculous, and it's something that I don't want to have to worry about in the future. Yeah, but we do. But we do worry about it, and we care. We do. And that's what counts. Yeah. We care. <laughs> we try our goddamn best at caring, <laughs> at the very least. By the way, you've got a midterm election coming up in about a month. No, less, less than a month. Like, it's like three weeks l- away. L- less than a month. Yeah, like three or four weeks away from the time that we're recording this. Vote. Go vote. Now is the time to vote. If you didn't vote last time, vote this time. Dan, we might have to do a show on uh, uh, compulsory voting. Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> I think it's like, I think, what I are we, think Aust- Australia. Australia has compulsory yeah, voting. Like, if you don't vote, you have to pay a $50 fine. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, no. It's like, oh, man. It's like having health insurance. Jeez. <laughs> oh, man. That's that's another topic for another time. That is another topic for another time. Oh boy. Well, my, well, I guess. Oh, and just because the the Supreme Court pick is off the table for this election, don't not vote because of that. Like that's not the only motivator. No. And that was a very clear motivation for getting this, you know, tied up in a bow as soon as humanly possible for Brett Kavanaugh is having that on. Um, the table for the midterms was chess wise not a very viable option for the republicans you know you can just imagine why that would be yeah 
and with that meek note, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, JT, anything? I, I, anything I think, else? Uh, I think I hear topic? the Illuminati calling at this point. Yeah, there's that noise. There it is. Yeah. Oh, man. Well. Gosh, it's been so long. I can't I know, even this remember is, this exactly is, what we need to see. This is our first episode, yeah. and it feels like many moons, but it's been like a few weeks. <laughs> yeah. It, it has yeah. been a long time. However long it's been. Um, too long. I, I'd like to encourage our listeners to uh, continue to check out our, our past episodes. You know, do some catching up. Do some heavy drinking. Maybe you'll have a listening party where you just all get hammered and listen these back to back. <laughs> I know that it's an option for people to like plan their cocktail with what we're talking about. So they'll like. That's why we keep the cocktail kind of in the. The, the episode title yeah. so that you kind of know what's coming. So drink along with us whenever you see one of these come out. It's uh, it's fun. And the Negroni feel. was especially delicious. It'll make it feel. Uh, yeah, let's it see. If you have any gripes, complaints, love mail, hate mail, sultry love letters, you can send them to cocktailpartycongress at gmail.com. And if you're lucky enough, we might Absolutely. read your email on the show. Yeah, absolutely. And as always, our opening music was Darksea Land by Kevin McLeod. You can find that track and more at incomputech.com. And as always, look to the show notes for the spelling of that because I learned my lesson in the few, few first episodes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, just a reminder, as we spoke of in the beginning of the episode, the Cocktail Party Congress is part of the Fancy Bat Network, and there are a number of wonderful shows that uh, we've appeared on intermittently and are definitely worth your listen, so go to FancyBat.com, check out the Cartoncast, Empowered. Uh, We were also on um, Amusement Amusement Sparks, Sparks, which was a hell of a fun show, Um, so please everything that's out there on the Fancy Bad Network, please check out. And, uh, JT? In Vino Veritas. <laughs> yeah, In Vino Veritas. Good night, everyone. Listeners, let's bring back the devil's advocate. The Catholic Church had a special position in its hierarchy by that title, and it was their responsibility to provide counter-arguments when they were considering a new saint. Procedurally, it makes a lot of sense. To send a saintly candidate through the process with no critique whatsoever would kind of look bad. If character flaws or misrepresentations existed, it was the devil's advocate's role to find them and to make them known. It was also, if unofficially, an acknowledgement of the fact that even the most morally upright among us have their faults and their sins. Anyone on whom we even consider conferring a powerful title, let alone actually conferring it, should have to contend with their insufficiencies. We all have them, even saints. The office is essentially defunct, but the term remains in our vocabulary. To play the devil's advocate means that you will argue a position that you don't necessarily believe, but that you think is not being made, and really should be. It can be an important tool to make sure that the other person is making the best possible argument, and has considered reasonable counterarguments and knows how to argue back. When done in good faith, it makes the other person's argument stronger, and everyone is better off. When done in bad faith, devil's advocacy has a very different effect. You often see this on the internet, but it can happen in the flesh. Some people play devil's advocate as a form of trolling, It can be hard to notice, but you might notice a bad-faith approach if the argument is on a topic that is overly contentious and goes into unnecessarily inflammatory detail. If the devil's advocate proffers unreasonable or absurd positions, beware. It's probably a good idea to disengage at that point and find something better to do with your time. The fact that this happens raises alarms in many people's minds when they hear the phrase, I've seen plenty of chatter on social media to the effect of, The devil has plenty of advocates, so don't bother. And I get that. Bad faith is a form of currency in this political era. A lot of people do it, and it can be hard to tell when. And honestly, a normal person just arguing on the internet probably doesn't have to take a 
argument to its logical exhaustion point. But let's not destroy the practice in its entirety. It's essential that those whose job it is to make the best possible arguments are enabled to do so. We all have our biases, and not only do we often forget to consider the validity or the attractiveness of our adversaries' arguments, we sometimes even consciously refuse to. It's almost a moral virtue to have never considered another position, and it's common to treat objectively measuring our own positions against those of the other side as a form of thought crime. This is a habit that we need to break. We live in a society where, theoretically, it is the quality and convincingness of an argument that wins the day. Those who want power have to rely on argument, not force. Shutting people up isn't an option. Someone seeking political power should want to have their positions tested. I consider it a mark of integrity and of thoughtfulness. I'm also wary of those who refuse to and who treat their positions as precious and beyond reproach. That reeks of cowardice and self-awareness of a weak position. Even if you have the best position, morally speaking, how do you know if you have covered all of your bases? You could be humiliated by one single point that in your sanctimony, you probably didn't consider. Now, I think that the best solution is for those who seek political power to seek out their own devil's advocates. It's a practice that is best taken on consensually. Find someone you trust, preferably from the other side, and practice in good faith. Subject your worldview to the outer limits of what you've ever considered, and do it willingly. It tells you what to work on. It prepares you for the potential mischief of others, and to not settle for sophistry or misrepresentation. It makes you better at what you do, and consequently, it makes us all better. Don't sanctimoniously hide from the devil, sure of your moral superiority. Learn how to beat him. The Republic still stands. <laughs>